Pathways to Resilience is brought to you in part by Omega, a learning community of funders and thought partners committed to understanding and responding to the great global challenges of our time. You can find out more about Omega at omega.ngo. In the past nine years, author and reporter Darja Mail has been on the front lines digging out the truth around climate disruption. And before that, he was reporting on the Iraq War. He is the author of several books, including The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption, and The Will to Resist, Soldiers Who Refuse to Fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. Additionally, he is a past recipient of the Izzy Award and the Martha Gellhorn Award for Investigative Journalism. Barbara Cecil is the author of the book Coming Into Your Own, A Woman's Guide Through Life Transitions. The book is a roadmap through life's thresholds. For 20 years, Barbara's work and writing has guided people through life-changing transitions with an ear to a deeper sense of purpose and meaning behind chapters of life that are ending. Her understanding of what it takes to change in fundamental ways has been a perfect setup for her new writing with Dar on the topic of climate breakdown. I recently sat down with Dar and Barbara to talk about their new monthly article series in the publication Truth Out titled, How Then Shall We Live? Finding Our Way Amidst Global Collapse. The monthly series invites the reader to face the darkness of an uncertain future, not with fear, but instead with an open, honest, and humble heart, mind, and spirit that can hold all of the grief, beauty, despair, and possibility that comes with deep change. In the face of such complex environmental and social problems, perhaps the first step should not be a rush to fix, but instead a letting go into listening, and in the deep listening, learn to ask better questions that can then lead to generative solutions that take into account the transgressions of the past and the health and well-being of future generations and the larger living systems within which we live. You're listening to Pathways to Resilience, and I'm your host, Weston Pugh. The name of your series is How Then Shall We Live? Where did that name come from? I think it's the question of our times. Yeah. And it implies that uh, given the multiple challenges and collapses and um, inevitable demise uh, at an ecological level, um, then the question is um, how do we position ourselves relative to all that? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of the obvious question, and I think it's pretty close to the surface for most people who are waking up to the reality of these times. Yeah. And so you both have written two... two it's, it's, it's going to be a monthly installment for Truth Out, and you've written two so far. Mm-hmm. And 
what what do you see this series as an opportunity to explore? I think it's looking into what is already on everybody's minds or at least in everybody's subconscious yeah. of, you know, things are collapsing all around us and massive unprecedented change is, is happening and, and we're just getting warmed up for what's to come. And I think that that leaves open the fact that we have to reinvestigate how we've done everything from what do we do for work? What's really, really important? Should we have kids? If so, how many and how? Um, what's going to happen with the education system? Does it make sense to stay in that education system? I mean, there's just, I think we have to reinvestigate and revision literally everything. So I think if we want to continue on with this series, we have job security insofar as we're not going to run out of things to write about. <laughs> I love that idea of a, of a radical revisioning because that's what the problem is really asking from us is a radical revisioning of how we live in relationship to ourselves, each other, the planet, uh, the unknown. And I think one of the, the things that I find so beautiful in, in the, the first two installations of this series is that it almost just gives it's an invitation that I think we're all in many ways looking for giving just permission to start to open up to talk about this, right? And it's such a huge topic that uh, it can be so overwhelming and sometimes you just need a little permission and just that, to cr crack the door open a little bit to then see what, what comes through which reminds me that you started the first one with, with a poem, which, which I have here. Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. Izumi Shikabu. Why did you choose to start with that poem? I think a lot of people are in denial and that they're petrified to look at all of this because there's very little sense of what creative possibility could be on the other side of acceptance. Mm -hmm. So th that poem points to the moon and some kind of a new kind of light that's coming through the the broken or burnt down rafters of the house. Mm. For me, the series is a way, originally we were putting it together, I kept thinking of it as a way to um, grab people's hands and say, you know, come on over, go through the threshold. Um, this, you know, we could really live. Um, and live well. And maybe we even came here to do this. So the series itself is, a, is a, a way of kind of going there first, walking into the territory, showing up um, in an alive uh, way that welcomes people out of their um, uh, just resistance and, and uh, terror. Mm. It really is the silver lining of 
the times of, you know, political collapse, climate catastrophe, economic collapse, all of this system that doesn't work and hasn't worked for so long and with it all coming down simultaneously, which is the moment that we're in. The silver lining to that is that we need to go back to living close to the earth and close to each other in a lot more simply in a lot more sane way. So mm-hmm. I think that's the moonlight. And I think more and more people are getting that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the great opportunity that this crisis gives us if we choose to take it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was wondering if you both could speak a little bit about your own personal journeys of what kind of led you to this moment where you decided you want to partner up and, and start writing about this uh, with, through the series. Well, I know for me, it was, you know, doing three years of really intense research and field work on this book about the climate crisis that I had just published and, and, and staring all of this apocalyptic information and what's happening to ecosystems and glaciers and species and sea level rise. I mean, it, it is truly apocalyptic. And so I was forced into it out of psychological and emotional and spiritual necessity of struggling with depression and throwing my hands up every two weeks like well, what's the point things are so off the charts at this point and we're just getting warmed up um so i i came into it with having to look inside and find out a better way to deal with this stuff and and so that's really what forced me into it was was my own work and then of course just the daily trauma of reading the news each time any of us i think gets online and fires fires up at whatever wherever we get our news and all of that combined is what brought me into it yeah for some reason in my life i've been a transition junkie um i, I i've worked with organizations that are going through changes shifting focus leadership styles uh mission i've worked as a coach uh, I've run lots of uh, courses for women who are shifting from one phase of their life to another. And I began to see that helping people do sort of personal growth was actually going out of date. Uh, I'm not very interested in you know individual development at this point. I'm, I'm interested in the bigger transition that's going on. Mm-hmm. I feel like everything I've done up to this date is training wheels for helping people to do this one. Because we're not, I mean, when you head into an uncertain future, it's, you know, it's a, a full court press on transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and and what, you know, we're, we're, we're using this, this word kind of collapse here, and you, you bring up climate collapse in the, your first the title of your first series and so how do you think about the idea of collapse how is are there a couple definitions that you that you use to kind of hold that or i guess in my mind with that word looking at the different ecosystems are literally in collapse you know mm-hmm. we're losing between 150 and 200 species a day we're mm-hmm. in the sixth mass extinction mm-hmm. Um, glaciers and ice fields are melting at accelerating paces. So literally we have ecological collapse. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we have a study that came out recently that shows that at our current trajectory 
assuming things don't speed up, which is a false assumption, everything's speeding up, um, no more insects within 100 years. I mean, that means no more humans. That means no more just about everything. So, so that kind of ecological collapse, as well as, I think, also a sort of mental collapse of people see that what has been happening just doesn't work. So it's like a collapse of sort of a philosophy or a paradigm or even a reality, mm. you know, and, and, and what's left to replace it. And I think that's why this series is thus far from what we've seen popular. Mm. I mean, people really are getting it on a deep level and people mm. really need this kind of conversation. Yeah. And cause it's not just about the collapsing of structures as you're kind of speaking to a little bit. It's also the collapsing of, paradigms right value structures that we're born into that help us shape meaning that help us define who we are to be in the world and and what is and isn't meaningful and so to to face not only the collapse of the environmental systems and also obviously the social structures around us but then to tie in the paradigm crumbling our ways of making meaning that becomes a real affront to um, people's concept of identity and individuality and so how do you in, and, and, and it's important to note, too, that collapse is already all around us, right? And not just in other countries. I mean, obviously, in, in other countries, people have almost been living in a collapsed state for a long time due to the ravages of colonialism and, and globalization. But also in Seattle. I mean, driving by some of the on-ramps in Seattle, we're obviously we're doing this interview now in Port Townsend, but... I drive by many tent cities a day where people do not have access to healthcare, where people do not have access to clean water, to food. Um, and so it is, it's not something that we're pointing at 20 years, 50 years down the road. I mean, this is something that the bulk of, well, not the bulk, but many people are living uh, day to day here just in America. And as I think you guys pointed out in your the second article, something like 40 percent of uh, humanity has trouble accessing clean clean water already already you know we're seeing uh, huge swaths of um, migrant like forced uh, refugee and, and, and immigration happening already due to lack of uh, resources so this is something that we're living in now and and so when when you're working with people and when you're having these conversations and when you're when you're presenting this this viewpoint to people how do you do it in a way that doesn't shut them down i think the candor and the open-heartedness uh is what actually opens something. There, um, if you don't, look, <clears throat> there aren't any experts in this. We've never been here before. So the, 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 the important thing is to show up for real with the questions that you have on the edges of your own thinking, rather than trying to bludgeon anybody with the solutions 
or the data that's telling you the collapse is happening. So there's a way of being in it together that invites curiosity. Um, it, in, it, it makes room for the heart. And that's what's really needed. These kind of conversations produce fear, they produce confusion, they pr produce in our young people in particular anger, grief. So it's the important thing is to show up for real and make space for all of that to come in. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I an image that comes to mind for me as I as I was just thinking about this question um, is this this idea that when we're staring into the void, be it the the reality of our own death or be it the collective death that we're we're being um, asked to face right now due to what's happening on all these various levels um, I, I I think of kind of it as uh, spelunking as going into these caves and so when you go into a cave to go explore you know you, you need this tool belt to with multiple flashlights and, and resources or else you're just staring into the darkness but if you bring the right resources, and 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 for me, what kind of comes up through reading both of your, uh, both of the the installments of the series so far, is that those resources need to be open-mindedness. They need to be, like you said, curiosity. They need to be imagination. Uh, they need to be poetry, and beauty. All of these resources that in our current culture. They need to be community, right? We can't stare into the void without others or else it's just too terrifying. So it's all of these resources that um, kind of have been marginalized in our culture and said, ah, those aren't important. Beauty, not that important. Community, don't really need it anymore in, in, this, in this world, in this culture. Uh, imagination, mm, not so much, you know, but th these... But, but, but in order to stare into that void in a way that doesn't totally shut us down, we need to, to, to re, you know, pull in from the edges all of those resources that have been kind of banished to the edges to be able to, to look into it in a way where it becomes generative, where it doesn't shut us down. Where, where, uh, and if we can hold it, uh, kind of looking into that void long enough, then as you said earlier, all of a sudden creativity can start to show up and possibility and maybe even hope right but it just takes the it takes um it takes the right tools to be able to to uh, navigate it appropriately and and you used the word threshold earlier and, and the word threshold shows up a couple times in the first piece and i'm wondering the language in the pieces is very poetic and I love that because it's very, it creates this open invitation into it, right? It's not just facts and numbers because those just kind of can shut us down sometimes. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if you could just speak to what the, the idea of a threshold means to you and why you felt like it, it made sense in that first piece. Well, frankly, I don't remember exactly how I used it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I could... Think of an answer right now. Yeah, well, I mean, what's showing up for you now around that? The, there are many kinds of thresholds. One of the biggest thresholds that we go through is 
when something's over. And that we, ha we have quite an aversion to ending things in our culture, whether it be a relationship or an idea that's been very precious to us, a self-defining concept about mm -hmm. life, a belief that we hold. We can't stand talking about death. We're um, fundamentally... Endings... I mean, we celebrate marriages, but what do we do with divorces? So it's ubiquitous in the whole system. But endings are huge thresholds. And to be able to acknowledge that maybe this has served its cycle, that this is over, um, to be able to celebrate or appreciate or learn from or heal from something that's over is a really important thing. So maybe that I'll start with that one. That's one type of threshold. And there is a lot that's over right now mm. that we need to pay attention to. A lot of a lot of funerals, a lot of blessing, a lot of gratitude, a lot mm. of forgiveness mm. that needs to happen as as things um, pass away at mm. many, many levels. Mm. Yeah, Barbara brought up, I mean, she used the word funerals, and we talked about that off and on for quite a while now because of the importance of saying goodbye to stuff. And whether it's a species or a glacier or this outmoded corporate capitalist system, you know, mm. this settler colonialist system, mm. all of it has to die. And a lot of those are, you know, I, I can't wait for those deaths to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's certainly those last couple of things I mentioned. And then the other parts of parts of, you know, species, ecosystems, glaciers, like that's tragic. That's absolutely mm. tragic, mm. you know. Um, but it's also important to do it. Mm. And, and so that we can get ready for what's coming, mm -hmm. or if it's a species, it's that then shows the imperative of taking care of those that are still here and how much more important those are now. Um, or if it's part of an ecosystem, the same thing, okay, we're some other land then that we can still protect and take care of. Um, and then just clear that out. And if it's things that we have to say goodbye to that are a great personal loss, you know, we have to do that to open up for what's coming. You know, mm -hmm. and, and I think being open now is is even just in this discussion to me is I get how important that is because we don't know. Mm -hmm. And that means we have to stay open to everything and anything. And we don't mm -hmm. know when it's going to happen or where it's going to come from. We just don't know, you know, and that's that's why the thing that we also talk about a lot is that this is a it's a we situation that nobody's going to get through this on their own and i mean right around the time when i met barbara i had this epiphany that you know the days of the lone dog the lone wolf are over you know lone wolves in this paradigm are not going to make it you know we have to get through this together and i mean like the big we i'd say another threshold relates to having the courage to actually enter into something unknown or after we let go of things, often there's a, a period of time when we're unsure about what we're doing. It's a time to just listen and breathe until something something becomes more obvious about um, uh, of changes that need to be made and things that need to clean up in relationships, things that maybe locations that you lived in aren't working any longer. There's a lot of people that are 
feeling like what they used to do does not fit any longer. Mm -hmm. I coach many, many people who have had an expertise and they've relied on it and they're good at it. And it's kind of like this layer in their life that they resort to to make money and relax and feel like an expert and a pro. And for some reason, they can't do it anymore. So it's forcing people to step out of comfort zones that's a big threshold. And to reskill, to relocate, to learn new ways of associating with people, and have the courage to, in a lot of ways, start over again. Yeah, I mean, for example, five years ago, I was working for Al Jazeera English in Doha, going into a office and wearing business attire, you know, with pumped in air every day and trying to figure out, you know, what's the next big feature story I need to write about. And now today, you know, like right before you get here, I'm rushing to get ready to take a shower because I've been out chopping wood all day for my heat for next winter. And we're getting our garden up and running for the spring and making sure the irrigation works. And, you know, to me, this is the most important stuff now. Mm -hmm. Or in a personal example for me right now, for some reason, Life has brought us and has brought me many young people, people who are mostly 17 and 18 for some reason, like the pattern is strong. And I feel like I'm being called to be a mentor, to grow into a kind of eldership. And I just got back from doing a workshop with uh, young men and women at that age that are looking at activism and how to, uh, who, what are the options open for them and what does have meaning in these times. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have kids. I've never been, that's never been, I've never been a teacher, but all of a sudden that's what's here. That's what's on my plate. Mm -hmm. I've worked with um, older people. And so I'm, I'm just in a really big learning mode and I'm saying, okay, my assignment's coming in, mm -hmm. and I'm, um, I'm loving it. Mm -hmm. in, in, in the piece, uh, I think it was in the first piece, you, you say that the demise of the biosphere exposes the lie of invincibility of Western for, uh, civilization. And further on in that piece, you include in that uh, the myth of growth and progress. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that. Well, it's obvious. I mean, we climate, the climate crisis has just highlighted the fact that this economic paradigm of this Western settler colonialist paradigm of eternal growth uh, is, is not only bumped up against the limits that are imposed on us by nature, but those limits are pushing back. So it literally, there's not enough resources. Prices are starting to go up, not even talking about the pollution and the climate impacts, but literally there's just not enough water and food, the way things are set up under the system and the faulty distribution and, and, you know, just the whole mindset behind it. It is, it is up against its limits and those limits are pushing back and that system is 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 on the way out i mean and to me that's another silver lining it's it's horrifying to think about what it's taking with it on on its way out the door but there is no question to me that it's on its way out the door and, and the people you know that's why we see this 
this you know frenetic um, almost this mania of those supporting it now it's they're literally in just this dinosaur paradigm this mm-hmm. mindset that you know somehow this is going to continue and i think another reason another kind of indication that we're up against these limits is look at what's happening with students the, the walkouts the the uprising the awareness that they're just not having it they are just not having it mm-hmm. i mean they see right through it and they don't they don't need us telling them about it. They just see right through it, and they're just not having it. And I think like the Greta Thunbergs mm-hmm. and, and the now millions of students that are stepping up, you know, they're just, they're just not going to they're, they're play that game. They have no interest, and I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And what of, you know, Steven Pinker, a famous author from, from England and, and academic, he, he wrote a book recently that's been kind of one of the best sellers on the New York Times list for, for a while, talking about how everything's getting better and how the system is working and then how poverty is being reduced and, and, and still be, uh, championing the, the paradigm of modernity. Um, are you familiar with his book at all? No, but the thing that comes to mind is that yeah. old saying is never underestimate the power of denial. I mean, where, what green zone is this guy living in? I mean, that, that flies in the face of all statistics that are upon us. I mean, UN statistics, even World Bank statistics. I mean, there there is a water crisis for billion, water and food crisis for over a billion people every day right now on this planet and everything is trending upwards there's mass migrations that are the numbers of people on the move globally are trending upwards and it's accelerating so rapidly every single year all of the the climate crisis i don't see how anyone living in reality really looking at what's happening on the planet could possibly think that anything's going better in any way i mean we are this is the age of collapse we are in an era change Mm -hmm. and and you know it's 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 that's the darkness that's upon us and that's why the moonlight is easier to see Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah you you also touch on this notion in the first piece which barbara you kind of spoke to a little bit earlier around well, to figure out our way forward, we first have to stop, right? And we, can't, we have to come into this place of, of deep listening. And part of the paradox uh, that you speak to is that in order to move forward in healthy and whole ways, we have to first cast our gaze backwards and look at how we have been living and the wounds that have come out of that behavior in order to move forward holistically we have to first heal those those wounds uh and it it reminds me of an alcoholic right that at some point in the 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 12 steps an alcoholic i think it might be the fifth or sixth i'm not sure but they they're encouraged um to go say i'm sorry to all of the people that they've wronged and i feel like we live in a system that is ultimately an abuser to a certain extent um, and there's a lot of I'm sorry's to go around in this system uh, be it connected to slavery or indigenous genocide 
imperialism, etc. But um, I'm just curious what comes up for you around, because so often when when we're we're posed with a problem in this culture, the our immediate response is to fix it, is to jump forward into action and to fix it. But what you're calling on here is to actually slow down and cast our gaze backwards, which uh, is not super instinctual as a cultural behavior. Well, it's what, what comes to mind is, is, especially with what you just said, is Weston is the one analogy I use when I give my climate talks, which are always full of incredibly intense information. And it's so hard for people to hear how far along we really are, you know, because it really does put us up against looking in the mirror at our own uh, uh, mortality. Mm. And um, I think um, so. So the analogy that I use is if you're going to plan a backcountry trip, do you not want the most accurate updated map possible? for that trip um, because we're at a point now where you know we've been forced to use a certain map by the dominant paradigm and it's gotten up to us to this point we realize we are completely lost we're just about out of food and water we're in big trouble and we have to figure out a completely new path now and so i, I think it's a matter of looking very very squarely at at what's going on um, so that we, we we need that information to know exactly where we are so we can figure out where we're going to go exactly from here and without reflecting on how we got here or how I got here I think it's very difficult to separate from those habits and assumptions about mm-hmm. lifestyle about success, what does success mean? About what we about happiness, what we need to be happy. Mm. So there's a lot of self-reflection that is looking back and looking back at where that came from, so that we're not just reflexively carrying out what was delivered to us by our parents or their or their parents. There's some mm-hmm some breaks that are needed um, like breaking patterns Mm. which means seeing patterns Mm. but also I think there's a really there's a lot about history Mm. that's collective Mm. I don't know Dar maybe like speak a little bit about all the stuff you've been reading and your experience of really getting U.S. history straight well another thing that I've come across recently is there's this great native american scholar who he's not with us anymore but his name's jack forbes and he wrote a a several books but one that has been really impactful on my thinking and understanding where we are and what got us here is he wrote a book called columbus and other cannibals and he talks about a phenomenon in there that essentially this kind of western settler colonialist mentality that is consuming the planet is 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 essentially an expression of what he calls waitiko, which is a, a psychosis, an insanity that leads the people who are infected with it to think it's okay for them to consume another person's belongings or the other person. 
And so if you look at this mentality, this largely Western mentality that spread all over, and there's even, of course, plenty of indigenous populations that are deeply infected with it as well, Mm -hmm. then that really shows us the spread of it around the planet like a cancer. And so, and as Barbara just said, you know, certainly I grew up in and was raised in that Waitiko that go to college, get a job, buy stuff, you know, start going, get on that economic treadmill. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I've had to kind of pull myself out of it. And I think um, a lot of, I know a lot of other people personally who have pulled themselves out of it. And it means re-educating yourself and getting the facts straight and learning what really is history and talk. We have to first get real clear about what has happened to the genocide that was brought upon the indigenous population of this country. Mm-hmm. You know, in California alone, you saw, you know, the Western colonial expansion annihilate more than 90% of the total indigenous population of California in less than 50 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as one of my elders, uh, a Cherokee man named Stan Rushworth says, you have to try pretty hard to do that. That's a plan. You know, you're, you're carrying out an active genocide trying to wipe out an entire population. And we have to get real honest about that. And one thing he talks about is until we look backwards, and this is, I think, part of what Barbara was alluding to, and get really honest about that and then talk about how are we going to make amends for that, that's a big question that hasn't been answered yet, because until we do, that genocide is infecting everything about this country. And if that is the foundation, that and slavery are the foundations that this country was built on. So I think we have to look backwards squarely at that before we can really look forward in a clear way. Absolutely. I, I the in in looking back it it gives us the opportunity to shine a flashlight in all of the shadows and bring light into those shadows to make sure that we don't bring them forward uh with us and that's that's to me was seemed to be part of the invitation that that you were making and and i i i don't know that uh there is any one way to do that. I think every community needs to look at their own history of, well, whose land is this? Who are, who are a part of building up this land? Um, what wrongs have happened here in these, these spaces? And then how do we heal them together as a community uh, for the benefit of future generations? So this doesn't, this thought virus doesn't get passed down to future generations uh, and the trauma that accompanies this thought virus. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of this beautiful, uh, initiative that was created by, I want to say the, the, the justice center, but it's, it's this memorial to, uh, African Americans that were lynched in the South. I can't remember if it was in Mississippi or maybe Alabama. I'll have to check and I'll put a link to it at the, at the end of the interview, but Basically, they they compiled a whole list of where lynchings had happened across the the South. And uh, as you go through the memorial, there are basically these metal bars that are hanging from the rafters. Mm. And under each metal bar is a plaque of a name and a county and a place where that lynching happened. And... And what is beautiful about the, the memorial is that it's interactive in the sense that the the museum that in then invites the counties where these lynchings have happened and the townships to come and pick up 
these beams that are hanging and bring them back to their own community as a way of claiming responsibility for what had happened and facing that shadow and collectively bringing it back and, and figuring out how they need to handle that. And, and I, I just think it's, it's such a, a, a beautiful, gentle invitation to face the shadow of, of our history. And, I, and I, I often think of, wow, is there any way we could do something for um, uh, our uh, indigenous uh, brothers and sisters that were taken away uh, in, and put into boarding schools? right ripped from their own families and, and put into boarding schools to somehow make amends for that and then the the land is is a whole nother issue but but how are you know how can we get creative uh through kind of interactive it's almost like a ceremony that they're inviting people into a kind of a, a community ritual to claim that and bring it back uh on on a pilgrimage almost of, of remembrance of what it what had happened and um so the goal of the of the memorial is to be empty Yes. I love that. Is to empty it out. That's brilliant. Um, and, and so I'm just wondering how we can, you know, feel into those ideas. And, and, and that's, I think, other communities can, can work with that concept in, in their own ways and what's appropriate to them. But um, And there's this other, you know, you, you talk about endings um, and you actually, in, in the piece, you encourage folks to do some journaling around noticing the endings mm -hmm. that are showing up in their lives. Mm -hmm. And you've spoken a little bit about this already, um, but can you just say more as to why you feel like that's important and how that exercise um, can be useful to people? Because we're averse to endings, it, it takes some honesty with yourself to uh, admit when there's one there and to practice it's like building a muscle oh this is over uh, and I'm going to acknowledge that and I'm going to feel whatever comes along with that so it's it's training in small little ways for big things and it also it also makes endings okay. And there's a you know really deep bias in us about not having things over or admitting, you know, somehow it looks like failure. And just our whole culture is, um, is averse, is death averse. So there's many versions of that everywhere. And the practice is, helps us to relax in a flow of birth and death. The whole, all of creation is built on cycles of birth and death. And there is something natural about that whole thing and something to trust so that we're not holding on to things the way they were and there, or, or locking ourselves down in the past or missing what's trying to be born. That's the big loss. So... Um, go from there exactly but it's uh... well and and you were speaking to kind of uncertainty it just it's it's training to live in uncertainty it's training to it's training to live in uncertainty you, you have to 
uh, instead of avoiding it, you welcome it. And you do it over and over and over again until you're just not so bloody scared of it. As a matter of fact, you might get intrigued. As a matter of fact, there might be something that's trying to happen in that big void. And that might be more interesting than what was happening in the past. Mm. So it's the, it's the opportunity to... But we've never learned to listen. All we do is reflect what comes at us from the outside. You learn it in school, you're taught by the government, you pledge allegiance to it. I mean, it's just one big uh, salute to the man or to the or to your teacher or to the education system. So what's been lost is, you know, the ability to just close your eyes and go quiet and listen for something that's... Uh, actually it's actually life it's life pushing forward um your next moves your interests your soul yourself your possibility your path your calling yeah and at this point our lack of listening is what's gotten us to the brink of possible even our own extinction mm -hmm. and yeah. you know there's a great story that uh, uh, the from the Pitt River Nation, Daryl Babe Wilson is the the indigenous man who shared this story about uh, Mount Shasta, which they call Akuyet, and inside of Mount Shasta is this small but powerful spirit called Mis Misa, and Mis Misa sings, and that singing keeps everything in balance. It keeps the Earth the right distance from the Moon, and both of those the right distance from the Sun, and it keeps the seasons on time, and the temperatures the right. Uh, within the right range and it keeps all of nature in balance but that's contingent upon people listening to the singing and there's a right way to listen and the first the most important part of the whole story is you have to be utterly quiet and really listen and then you have to comport yourself the right way when you go up the mountain to listen and that the story warns that if as long as people listen everything's going to be in balance and Mis Misa keeps singing but if too many people stop listening, Mis Misa will stop singing, and literally life on earth will be vulnerable to extinction. And so clearly that's where we are. And so one of the things that I talk about is try to remind people when I'm giving my book talks is I tell that story and then I say, where is it that you go to listen? And when's the last time that you've gone to listen? And we have to get really, really quiet and we have to listen and we have to start over. And often what, for me, I feel like when I'm listening really well and really deeply, what comes at me isn't necessarily answers, but better questions. Hmm. And, and perhaps what these huge, complex problems are, are asking for us is not s solutions but to ask better questions Beautiful. and we, we we live in this culture that is often you know very and and you talk about this and we'll get into this now but kind of uh we're always looking to fix the problem rather than to live in the question of the problem and um and I was wondering if you could just, just kind of, in, in the second piece, you, you start to address activism. And so, okay, now we're, we're, we're sitting, we're, we're, we're facing it, the void. We're facing this, this reality um, of uncertainty, 
uh, of death and renewal. And then what now, you know? And, and so then you speak to three different types of actions that, that can help frame people's perspectives and, and ways forward. And I was wondering if you could just kind of briefly touch on each of those three and then maybe offer some examples that are connected to each of those three. Well, they, they, that idea actually came from um, someone we mentioned in the article named Jim Bendell, who uh, wrote a fantastic paper called Deep Adaptation. And this is a man who came out of the financial world promoting sustainability of different parts of this economic system and saw the wheels coming off and took a sabbatical and did his own research and realized we're off the cliff and it's too late to fix anything and and really even to a certain extent to do any real mitigation other than to buy us some time so that we can adapt and so those are the three aspects that we talk about that he brought to the table which is fix it mitigate or adapt and the fix it is are would be things like the new green deal you know while it's really great to go do that and and it's i don't want to sound disparaging about it but that's trying to fix something and we're beyond fixing most of this and then so we get into mitigation so um, there's things we can do like building seawalls or things like this which that's going to buy us some time but that's all that's going to do you know it's not going to allow us to continue what we're doing and then there's adaptation which is what we're talking about here mentally psychologically spiritually we have to first adapt to okay everything that got us to this point is now rapidly going away and we need completely new ways of being. So how are we going to adapt individually to that? The adapting is where the creativity comes in, where we're, we're called to walk into unprecedented times and to support one another and to listen together. We're back to the listening thing. Mm. about because uh, people live in entirely different circumstances some people live in the city some people live in the country so the the process of adapt you know it's what makes sense for you given all this going on mm. and also thinking about families future generations like mm. what it's not just it's not about survival it's not about saving yourself it's about a um, a quality of life that is being asked for in this very precious and limited window that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. And that, that'll be different for, for every single person. Some people need to do the amends so you've got a clear slate with people, not, you know, not just uh, on historical levels. Mm-hmm. Um, some people... Who, we are very interested in growing our own food. That's um, that's for more than one reason, uh, not just survival and defending against some you know big threat to the food system that is actually going on, but it's for relationship with the earth. In this window, there's a whole different way of being, of listening, of communicating. Do you have any examples of people that are adapting in urban spaces or, you know, how do you hold this when it comes to an urban space, these ideas? Well, I mean, one example that we've known about for quite a while is what happened to Detroit, you know, post, it's this post-industrial, you know, the big 
corporations are largely gone and it's an economic collapse and you know market collapse uh, housing market collapse and and you know so what do people do in the wake of that and there's amazing examples there of people that banded together in communities and started growing their own food and rehabbing certain areas that needed um environmental remediation things like this so that's that's a, one example that, that's been done and then a growing number of community gardens in cities and things like that and citizen actions to deal with homeless populations to try to help them mm -hmm. so those are a few examples off the top of my head and then there is also a, a growing number of people that are finding their ways out of city and i know that there's a certain amount of privilege that comes with that but there is mm -hmm. certainly a, a, I, a, on one level at least a depopulating of cities i don't mean mm -hmm. that their overall numbers are going down in most cases they're certainly not they're going the other direction but there is sort of a voluntary late voluntary depopulating of cities and i mean i see that even just up here with more and more people coming up here from big cities that kind of part of this new awakening that look it doesn't make sense to live in a city it's not healthy it's not you know it's not good for your sanity you know it's it's they're very very dangerous and so more and more people are going into more urban environments and i think you know one one thing going into the future from this point it will be how how kind of rural areas are able to absorb some of these people coming out of cities. I think that's going to be a necessity mm -hmm. as economies collapse and states fail and, and these kind of things start playing out across the West that we've watched happen, for example, in, in the Middle East and other places around the globe. Um, so how, how are we now in the, in the rural areas able to kind of accommodate that and, and, and help however we can? And even in the city, there there are different kinds of things to pay attention to that are part of a new paradigm. Mm -hmm. So if the adaptation means looking at your own greed and starting to work as a community and taking into account the whole and not just yourself, there's a, a whole lot that can happen in denser population areas. When the whole impulse is scarcity, people start turning on one another, mm -hmm. but they're... So it takes a huge determination to stay open and to actually help one another mm -hmm. when the proverbial shit hits fan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the communities that are the most resilient often have the least amount of trauma underlying the bedrock because when when uh, when incidents hit collective groups, there can be a tendency for regression if, if trauma is underlying these community spaces. So again, it's another call. How do we all embrace this kind of the archetype of the healer in our own communities to come together to really look at these shadows as a preparatory step for the inevitable bumps in the road that are coming down because if there are fissures in our community that's going to come straight out to the surface when we hit these larger challenges whereas if if we're able to move through those those healings those deep healings now and we can gain trust in one another then then we have the value system and the meaning making system already solid and established to be able to to, to uh, hold uh, whatever bumps in the road come at us so it's not 
trauma that comes out on the other end, but it's actually growth. And there's all this interesting research about post-traumatic growth and, and, and what's required for growth in the face of adversity. And often it's, it's a healthy resource kit. It's being able to trust people, being able to know how to communicate, being, having a, a certain level of social emotional intelligence, right? All of these social skills that can then help us to turn that, that obstacle into growth and transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know we're, 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 we're coming up uh, on an hour here and I just, I'm, I'm thinking about hope and, and the role of, of hope in, in all of this. And, and hope is such a tricky word because it's like there's kind of different levels of hope. Hope can often be superficial and, and feel superficial and, and our hopes can get dashed and then we can so easily fall into despair. Uh, but then maybe under that despair, but then maybe that despair opens up if we sit with it long enough, actually into a more robust and vibrant form of hope that is maybe different from the first level of hope. And, and so I'm just curious how you all think about hope and also right action, right? Because often what keeps despair away is action, but how do we act in the face of, of, uh, what I think perhaps systems theorists call wicked problems, problems that are so huge and complex that you just don't even know how to kind of engage in them. Um, so what, what shows up for you around, around hope and, and action and also despair too, because that's kind of a part of that when we're, when we're doing this work. Yeah, I, I have to talk about this a lot, basically every time I give a book reading, um, given the climate crisis, because I go through at one point during my talk a litany of data that's you know peer-reviewed scientific data, and you look at it all together, and there's a very, very heaviness that settles over the audience. Everybody's basically floored, and then I have to get into this part of what do we do and I actually do a pretty elaborate deconstruction of hope in my book because I think it's something it's another dinosaur mentality that we have to let go of I feel like it 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 kind of kicks our agency into the future to some unknown source you know is do we hope for a politician to save us or the activism or a movement or or uh, uh, you know a moment in time you know it I think it's I it, it kind of absolves of of our own agency and i think that's a dangerous thing and and because i think now the times demand each one of us to again be really really quiet listen very intently and then i think each one of us is going to know what we really need and want to do during this time and i think the only way we get through this together is is if each one of us does that and then brings that to the table full force whether it's to be a doctor, whether it's to be a gardener, whether it's to be a climate journalist or a podcaster for the truth. I mean, whatever, whatever that is, it's going to take all of it and then some. Um, and so I'm very critical of this kind of antiquated idea of hope. And, you know, there's a, 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 the gist of a Vaclav Havel quote that I also have in my book. He talks about, you know, it's it's not about 
doing something and being attached to the results. It's about doing something because it's the right thing to do, regardless of the results. And right now we are in a moment in time, just looking at it through the climate lens that, you know, we, we are morally obliged. And, and I think this is to, to do the right thing, no matter what. And, and, you know, before I, uh, personally leave the topic, I, I want to just bring to the table something that's kind of become a modus operandi for me, which is, um, you know, we, in, in Western colonial mentality, it's, there's this idea of what are my rights? I have rights. We all have rights, but that flies in the face of indigenous wisdom in that culture, which believes we're each born onto the planet with two primary obligations. One to take care of the planet and two, what do we, what can we do to take care and protect future generations? And so if I get up and instead of like, Oh, I hope this is going to happen or I hope that's going to happen. But I get up each day and I ask myself those two questions about those obligations. What do I need to do? What can I do today today to try to take care of the planet? And what can I do to try to safeguard future generations? I'm going to be very, very busy. And there's a whole lot that I can do and I have to use my imagination and I have to listen and I'm going to have to get creative, but there's a lot of people doing that. And I think, my my mo now is obligations and it's and it's a privilege to have and get to try to fulfill those obligations i don't look at the word obligation sometimes it has negative connotations but i i i see it as a privilege and that that certainly you know you don't need hope in that paradigm mm-hmm. you just need your own imagination and then you need to roll your sleeves up beautiful i, I love that and and uh what, what shows up in, in me around that, too, is this idea of um, if, if you are keeping your action connected directly to that self-agency, to what can you do here in this space, what you're doing is you're, you're creating these very, very deep roots with your community, with, with the systems within which you can you can um, touch, which is what resilience is all about. And Adrian Marie Brown, author of this book called Emergent Strategies, talks about how um, in, in her own uh, movement spaces, the, uh, the goal kind of... It, when we activism used to be to create these really, really, you know, horizontal um, uh, systems that were kind of an inch deep and a mile wide of, of people, everybody on the same boat doing the same thing and moving in the same direction. But that that's not resilient. You have a very thin root system, right? Rather than a mile wide and an inch deep, it needs to be a mile deep and an inch wide. And, 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 we can do that because that's and, and that rearranges kind of this idea of effective action. I feel like in our culture, we've been trained, oh, effective action needs to be these broad things that create these huge changes on like big political levels. And then that paralyzes everybody almost into inaction. But this this like, well, what can I do in my community there? How do we, we work to, to kind of heal re- relationally, heal personally, heal structurally and create these kind of mild, deep root systems that can then kind of weather these these oncoming storms. So I, I, I love that. And what's what's showing up for you, Barbara? Well, I, I want to say something, though, about action and hope relative to the young people, mm. because um, Greta Thunberg is saying over and over again, I don't want hope, I want action. Mm. And action produces hope. Mm. 
So it is a giant motivating factor. But I want to say something that I hear in that, that mm-hmm. may be just my own... Um, well, it's what I hear, but it's what I see in the people that, in the young people that I'm working with, is that when they're mobilized, and, and usually in this, the, like there a lot of these you know, marches are, and strikes are trying to change a system mm-hmm. that is inevitably going down. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's a fix-it or a mitigation action that's being taken. Mm-hmm. So the hope for, for some people is that they'll be able to fix it. Mm-hmm. But the hope that I see that touches me very deeply is who these who these young people become as they do this they are finding their own agency they are finding their own voice way before they should be technically Mm -hmm. in terms of how their brains are wired and Mm -hmm. you know what it takes to mature you know Mm -hmm. 15 16 17 years old but there's a um something awakening there's some kind of fulfillment that um, is, um, it's not hopeful in terms of what it will produce. It is just a, um, a return or an emergence of something that has this huge amount of fiber that we've been missing for a long time. So it's part of the end story, maybe. I don't really know. Maybe mm-hmm. it will produce a miracle, mm-hmm. this massive mobilization as opposed to the depth piece mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I would be glad yeah. to be wrong yeah um, but the hope for the future is in and in, in who these young people are becoming as they do this mm. it is mm. blinding light yeah a uh, an elder uh, when the, the marches were happening a few Fridays back mm-hmm. said I'm so glad these young people aren't letting school get in the way of their education. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and I really look forward to whatever uh, article, what, at whatever number it is in the series that really, really challenges the education system. Well, you won't have to wait long. That's the <laughs> one we're working up right now. And... You know, lastly, I, I, I pulled up after uh, just kind of in, in sitting with, with the, the totality of the, the, the two pieces. Um, this poem came to me from, from the, the Talmud. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Thanks so much for, for chatting. Thank you again to Dar Jamail and Barbara Cecil. You can read their monthly series on truthout.org's website by searching for How Then Shall We Live? Pathways to Resilience is brought to you in part by The Resilience Project, a learning community committed to understanding and responding to the great global challenges of our time. They have a growing list of resources that relate to resilience, which you can explore on their website at resilienceproject.ngo. Pathways to Resilience is an education, leadership, and community development organization that uses media and online and site-specific experiential educational programming 
to nurture relational wisdom and resilience on personal, interpersonal, and structural levels. You can find out more about our offerings at pathwaystoresilience.net.